Welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. We are a new magazine, website, YouTube channel and podcast dedicated to history and historical fiction. On this podcast, you'll find interviews with best-selling and acclaimed historians and novelists talking about great events and people of history. Head over to our website where you'll find articles, interviews, book reviews and short stories. And they're all absolutely free. We also have annual subscriptions to our magazine at the shockingly low price of 9.99 in both pounds and dollars, which of course you can gift to friends and family. Anyway, on with the podcast. Please do subscribe if you enjoy it and give us a great rating if you can. Welcome back to part two of my chat with Tessa Dunlop, the author of Army Girls. In this episode, we learn more about what the ATS women had to put up with and what their experience can tell us about class, sexism and race. Army Girls, the secrets and stories of military service from the final few women who fought in World War II, is out now. Now, yeah. you mentioned politicians, um, you've mentioned Churchill, but politicians themselves, and, and this, I, I think, connects back to the, the whole discussion around reputation, and um, I suspect, in that politicians were very nervous about women, well, the creation of the ACS, you talked about the difficulty of it, but I just wanted to understand a little bit more about, um, you know, the whole, the, the reputation, how certain politicians use quite inflammatory language in Parliament talking about the ATS. Yeah, well, I, I meant at the beginning we talked about the sexism and the snobbery, this toxic cocktail. Um, and it, it, I mean, it's dubbed the auxiliary tart service, you know, the ATS. It's, or as Joan says, aged 101, ground sheets, ground, officers' ground sheets, that's what they were called. So the idea was that these bawdy, less than um, middle class girls were going to be loose. And there was a high high levels of concern about the behavior not of men but of women ironically enough you know can, are women going to behave themselves are our maidens are the future mothers of our next generation of children going to be hardened and will they become promiscuous that word was used a lot and what's interesting is there's such a lot of concern about this that Markham committee a parliamentary committee was instigated to look into the conditions of the female services now on the surface this was also looking into the accommodation and so forth but a lot of it was about com uh, combating rumors derogatory to the service and what what i found fascinating what was good and this, this is where the secrets come in but you know the women some will admit today and certainly in their letters all of them complain about lechy men it's like leave me to 1940s style you know, they, as Daphne said, if you're in a uniform, it was like you're seen as free, free for all, you know, and married men were constantly having a little go at her. She was pretty, pretty as a peach. You know, she's constantly having to bat off the boys. Anne, who, um, the late great Anne, who was a junior commander by the end of the war, um, is very keen that she doesn't undermine the reputation of World War II soldiery. But, uh, and this was particularly an issue for the girls who went overseas, they were heavily outnumbered, those girls, and those that were selected, especially initially, were given significant sort of interview procedures to make sure that they were well equipped to be able to deter unwanted attentions. I mean, the irony of it, you know, so, so these 18 year old girls were meant to be sufficiently self-aware and prepossessed to be able to push off a man advancing towards them. I say, you know, men had to dodge advancing bullets and women had to dodge advancing men. And the punishment came fairly and squarely down on women. 
if you got pregnant, bearing in mind there's no real con contraception, you're out. Well, nothing happens to the men. There's no equivalent parliamentary committee looking into the British army and their lechy behaviour. And it did. And, and, the, and the men, what? to an extent, one has to have sympathy. You know, this is the 1940s, for goodness sake. They're reared to think of, of, of women not as fellow soldiers, but as, well, future wives and mothers of their children. And they've just been fighting. If you think, in, so Anne's sent to serve in Italy. And these men are um, coming up from the Middle East, from North Africa. And they're, you know, sex starved. They've not had even their mother's love. You know, they lack even female company, let alone, you know, uh, sex. They're, 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 they've been traumatized a lot of the time. You've been fighting in the Battle of El Alamein or something. You want a bit of a feel of a soft and comely body, do you not? So Anne found you should get into an army vehicle and she's forced to sit on these guys' knees and she'd be the one having to say, look, steady on that, I don't want this. It was up to her that the, 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 the onus was on the girl to guard against that kind of behavior and to just to quit this elite force, the fannies, which came loosely under the umbrella of um, the ATS during the war. The fanny um, stood for first, um, first aid nursing yeomanry. They were actually established in 1907. They were sort of recruited from a closed social network and were seen to be a sort of classier set. And they were sent overseas earlier, working in fact, in conjunction with SOE, a special operations executive. They were sent overseas earlier. And the result was that they, um, what was the result? The result was that, 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 well, one of the reasons why they were sent overseas earlier was because they were presumed to be able to have, behave better. Again, the pressure on the girl to behave, not the man. So there you go. And, and, I, and Joan as well, she ends up in occupied Germany where they're vastly outnumbered. And also in occupied Germany, the men cannot fraternize with the enemy. So if you've got 2,000 men and one girl, like one girl's, you know, it's got to be an allied girl, got to be the Brit. You can't have a go at the locals. You know, that's strictly banned. And Joan's just like constantly bothered by this guy. She's in, the, she's in the legal aid department and she just goes nearly mad. He leaves roses on her desk, tries to kiss her, gets in contact with her parents. He's a proper stalker. You know, but that, and that story I felt has been kind of hidden and not talked about. So we're so busy glorifying our boys, our troops, you know, they died for the country. They did, they did. But they're also a goddamn pest, like men still are today. But I think men, are, not all men, but I think we're more aware of it now. There's been more open conversation, you know, and girls, that's crucially, feel more able to call it out more readily. And what's interesting is Joan um, says nowadays, I'd have just told him what for, but I didn't sort of feel I could. You know, they're trying to not offend these men, but at the same time, protect themselves. And that Jean, who is one of my fannies, she's brilliant, Jean. She's an SOE code and... Um, uh, code cipher and she goes out there and she's writing home to her sister you know god they're all trying to kiss me at the end of the night I really can't be doing with it you know I, I do think public opinion you know is quite a good thing you know she's so sweet bless her she's really struggling she's 18 you know I, I mean you, you got to take hats off to these women but one of the bigger, biggest dangers ironically is not the jerry bullet for the girls but well the allied penis to be honest right <laughs> Um, so, so motivations for these um, women joining, yeah, uh, they're 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 quite varied. Um, I mean, you go from from ambition. I, I think was it Daphne who was keen to to join up to so that she'd be employable after the war. Yeah, yeah, she was ambitious. Daphne's always been quite ambitious. There's a mixture of reasons. You're right. Now we just need to probably touch upon the anniversary that this book is meant to encompass is the anniversary of the 80th conscription of, for women 
conscription into the war effort ought to be said that it was felt politically we could not insist uh, girls wore a uniform so they were given the option of working in it was initially voluntary then well until 1941 yeah you had to sign onto your labor exchange by 41 but until december 1941 there wasn't conscription it was the, the national service act number two for women it was also a, a dealt with men as well it extended the range of men that could be conscripted but for women, the, the element of compulsion was introduced for the first time, but they had to be given the choice, either munitions or military service, because it was seen as politically unacceptable to insist a woman wore a military uniform. Of course, a lot of girls didn't want to work in the munitions factory and they couldn't get into the REMS because it was full, ditto the WAF, which left the ATS. So you got some, and, and girls like Daphne and Joan, who I've mentioned, who ended up in occupied Germany, quickly could now get around their parents who up until that point said, no, you can't go and, and work in, in the HS. We don't want you leaving home and wearing a uniform for reasons aforementioned, mainly this worry about allied men, soldiers, <laughs> less about Jerry, Jerry Bullets, but, but both, to be honest, safety generally. Um, but now that's been overridden by the law. So the girls get their way and they realise they've got to sign up quickly so they can choose the job. Because if you're going to get a rush of girls, a glut of girls coming in in early 1942, the selection of jobs, you might end up horror, horror being a cook or an orderly. And they don't want that. They want the sexy jobs, you know, the great big gunny oneies. And so um, there you see a rush. Now, the only woman in my book, and this is, again, another pitfall of oral history for those people planning to write oral history, um, you have to guard against your sample or you have to at least acknowledge there is bias within your sample. Probably I, I did neither in the book. I don't know, but I do need to flag up that a lot of girls had to be conscripted. They didn't really want to be in the ATS. But those women who remember fondly their war service clearly probably did want to be in the ATS. And therefore, you've got a biased sample. Also, I'm depending on those who, who remain. And there's only about 60 on the planet left who served in Britain in the ATS. Um, therefore, I only found one and quite accidentally found one woman who waited until her papers arrived, i.e. she didn't want to join the military effort. She loved her job, Nanza Downey. She was having a cracking time, thanks very much, in a Kushti number in Glasgow in an insurance firm and was thoroughly miffed about having to leave home and go. And she was in signals, actually, and she did quite enjoy it, although she took it with much more of a pinch of salt. She was a little bit older and, you know, she was kind of you know, OK, this is the war and I'm doing doing what I'm told, but it's not the be all and end all girls. She was quite bolshy, for want of a better word. Ironically, rather wonderfully on the Nanza front. She's now 98. She's totally cool. She's very Glaswegian. I love her. She um, she's just gone into a um, star and garter veterans home, having all her life sort of poo pooed, you know, this kind of military narrative and not really had much truck with the, the, the sort of romancing of the Second World War, is loving her veterans, old folks. And, Ooh, I'm outnumbered. There's so many men here, she says. It's brilliant. It's so good. <laughs> so she's just moved into a star and garter recently. And, and how did you find these women? Oh, well, Nanza came through a Bletchley girl. Bletchley's just a little side. I don't want to jump down that rabbit hole, although I do briefly in the book as an example of one of the many trades that were then open to women where Betty Webb, I actually call her Charlotte Webb in my, um, if you're really famous like Betty is, you can have two names, a bit like Madonna. Um, but Betty was, Ble was not only an ATS girl, but she was the only ATS girl I found who worked in Bletchley Park when I wrote the Bletchley Girls. So I knew of her and I've remained friends with her. We're good friends. And um, I got there and do sleepovers sometimes with Betty. She's heaven. Anyway, she's coming down to do a sleepover um, on the 10th of November for an event I'm doing. Anyway, that's beside the point. So Betty is very with it. And she knows all her local ATS women. 
And she put me in contact with Nanza, who wouldn't have otherwise volunteered for a book. But because I knew Betty and we were sort of friends and I'd met Nanza through Betty before, that's how I found Nanza. But the others, and I have to give a big shout out here, and if you could tag them in, please, when you put out this podcast, to the WRAC Association, which is a charity for former service women, both then and now. And they were very helpful um, in terms of finding women for the book. They didn't find all of them, but they found a lot of them. There were a few others I found, like, for instance, um, uh, Barbara, who's wonderful. She learned to drive in the same place as the Queen. She much more identifies with the British Legion and the Royal Artillery. And a friend of mine uh, drew, my, drew my attention to her. And ditto, my two fannies came from different sources. Yeah. One needs a fanny or two in a book, more about the Army Girls. Now, you mentioned the Queen there, yeah. uh, probably the most famous ATS veteran. She obviously had slightly different experience to the uh, other women in the war, but um, could you just mention what she's she... a much shorter experience? In fact, I did because I, I like to get veterans from all different British nations, but I failed in Wales because um, I wrote to this woman and she said I was only in the war for a few months, so I don't have anything to say. And I thought, yeah, but that's the exact same as the Queen. That would actually be really valuable. But anyway, I didn't push it. I don't want to push people to age 98 to join a you know my merry circus of army women you've got to want to do it so um so the the queen yeah she's an interesting case where symbolically it's important by the end of the war one of the reasons of course is very late on in the war do we introduce this directing women overseas because we need to back up our two million allied men on the continent um, and mentally, we're sort of closing down as a nation. We're thinking we're getting towards the end of the war, post D-Day landings. And lo and behold, no, they're wanting to direct our girls overseas. We're having none of this. And that also then a compulsion is introduced when we don't get enough recruits because they all have to have a letter of permission from their parents or wait for it, their husbands. You couldn't make it up, could you? Hi, darling. Could you let me go? Um, not enough girls got that letter. And so there had to be, they had to be directed um, onto the continent and I think therefore there's still an onus on recruitment and keeping the reputation of the ATS up there um, so it's very helpful to have someone like HRH Elizabeth uh, joining now her father was pretty typical of his generation of men where he just didn't have much truck with the idea of women in uniform so throughout the war he'd gone no you don't want to do that crawl fee her nanny apparently wanted to go and join the Wrens and he was like god's sake we're just going to be making some old admiral's breakfast stay put um, and he didn't have much truck with Elizabeth. He'd had a pretty dull sheltered war stuck in Windsor Castle. But by the end, she badgers her way in and is permitted to become a driver, which I ought to say is the flash trade prior to sort of the gun sites and stuff. Being a driver is what a lot of the girls want to do. It's the sort of nearest to action they get. And um, like Barbara, Barbara was very similar to the Queen. You know, and many girls, this has become the automobile. It's a bit like being towed of Toad Hall, you know, poop, poop, off we go. And... Um, so the queen is, uh, well, she's not the queen then. She's, I got in such a muddle. They've all got the same names because Princess Royal, the queen's aunt, was a very good controller commandant of um, the ATS. She's Mary. And then her mother, Queen Mary, was the big cheese, the titular head of the WAF that Jen changed its name when she became their titular head. So you've got two Marys, you've got two Elizabeths, you've got the queen mother who was then the queen. So when I talk about the queen, people think I'm talking about today's queen because she's also Elizabeth. Can you see what a muddle as a writer you get in? And then I found it was final proofing stage. Some mistakes did slip through the net. If you spot a mistake, I'll send you a free book. No, I won't, there's too many, gotta be at it all day. Anyway, <laughs> maybe the first person to spot a mistake gets a free book. Um, 
But I suddenly realised I was calling Her Majesty the Queen, HRH. So I got such a muddle, you know, because obviously she, she changes status. But um, HRH Elizabeth um, is keen and she does, she learns to drive in Camberley where Barbara learns to drive on, on very similar motor and mechanics course. She doesn't have to do the gas training and she doesn't have to have all the drill and the dreaded physical training. She's exempt of all the sort of more mundane and loathed procedures to turn you into a good female soldier. And, and also she doesn't, crucially, she doesn't stay in the barracks, which is a kind of very formative experience. A lot of these girls had never left home. And they're sort of discovering what bits of other girls' bodies do. And, you know, it's all sort of talk about lesbianism. Funnily enough, all the concern from the public, external concern, was about women and men. But for a lot of girls, it was, you know, oh, gosh, you know, look at their bodies. Ooh, they're having a cuddle on the bed. You know, there were some rules about um, lesbians. Um, it wasn't, funnily enough, unlike homosexuality for men, it wasn't illegal. It was a very grey area. But if you were what the ATS termed a promiscuous lesbian, you were posted elsewhere. Yes, so there we are, that was dealt with swiftly. And uh, Penny was given a, uh, well, had an eye-opening experience. And um, Barbara, the reason I talk about that was had, um, you know, wonderful sort of conversations about this with a woman she decided was definitely a prostitute in the barracks in Camberley, who was, <laughs> who was telling her about this. And uh, she decided perhaps that's why the Queen didn't stay in barracks because she might have been exposed to these untoward influences. Remember, we are talking the 1940s. Homosexuality, interestingly, was decriminalized so late. It's incredible just how late it was decriminalized. In the late 1960s, I think it was 67. The Wolfson Report came out in the 50s. It's extraordinary, you know. We're so impatient for change, and it, but yet it took so long to come. It's so writing about that period, I found that our whole language has changed the way we talk about race, about gender, about sexuality. It's just been turned over on its head. And I found it quite difficult actually with one of my women that's just very honest with me about attitudes towards race. The army gave the ATS lectures on how to behave towards black troops who were coming in predominantly from America and were segregated because the Americans still had segregation. And talking about them in, in what would consider now to be totally unacceptable terms, but somehow, compiling this and writing about it honestly without undermining Beryl's contemporary reputation as a 99-year-old today was a challenge. And in the end, it, um, she, she, because she herself had traveled with time, which, which meant that in the end that, that, you know, the kind of the story had this, uh, what's the word, um, um, a recuperative ending in many respects, where she herself had come from Trinidadian um, ancestry, uh, 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 imperial family, but with this, um, probably what she thinks was a, was a black ancestor in the family tree that was never identified because you didn't identify with your black ancestors. You're desperately trying to be white, you know, in a very racially um, discriminatory world. And so in the Second World War, there she is saying, you know, we were sort of worried, you know, a bit anxious about black men. We wouldn't necessarily get into their Jeeps or their cars. And there she is in as Black Lives Matter swirls around us in 2020 saying, oh, but I want to know, actually, if I have black blood, I want to know what my DNA is. I want to know what I shared with these troops, not what divided us. So there's something kind of poetic about that. And it showed about how far we've come just in one lifetime, that how far the thinking has come on. I would say there was, I, did, I do still have, she's still alive. She's the oldest. I said my oldest is 102. Actually, no, Ina is 104. And the reason sometimes I don't include Ina in the way that I should, she's from the West Indies, is that I never actually got to personally speak to her. And I'm really strict and fussy 
about being able to speak to these women myself. Do you know, otherwise, you know, it's just sort of like any other compilation history book. But for obvious reasons, in a pandemic aged 104, in Barbados, where she now lives, this proved um, a step too far. And her daughter gave me access instead to a pre-recorded Zoom she had done, a Zoom one-hour interview she had done and other materials that were available and answered some questions that I had about Ina's life. But I wasn't able to talk to her directly, um, uh, which I'm, I'm sad about, but that's that's life and that's extreme old age and that's a pandemic. But Ina was a, an interesting case. You know, um, she, she was um, a West Indian ATS girl and there were very, very um, few of them indeed. Um, just a hundred came over to serve in Britain. Uh, there were more recruited locally. There were ATS girls recruited in India, in the Middle East, and so too in the West Indies. But this was a big standoff between the colonial office and the war office. The war office did not really want women of colour in Britain. And the colonial, and the colonial office was keen, right? was very keen because they needed to show these, you know, parts of the empire that are straining to break free of the mother country. Hey, we're all in this together. You can fight in our imperial war. We're equal. So there's two different narratives going on. And the war office misjudged it. Actually, the reception these very few of 100 or so girls got in Britain was, was um, not exclusively, but certainly from Ina's point of view, was a very warm one. Um, they, they were welcomed and they were all fighting on the same side. As, as her daughter said, you know, there was a common enemy. And that's a, that's a message I had quite a lot that, you know, that actually there was this and we, uh, you know when the four nations of Britain stood together when there was this kind of and I think that's one of the reasons why we see it as the kind of high noon of modern Britain nothing binds hearts and minds like a common enemy and uh, Ina had a had a great you know she, she she talks about the war very fondly and um she went on to train over here legally legally and in Britain Gray's Inn Road and, and goes back and is a phenomenal um sort of trailblazing female barrister in Jamaica so yes it was a great story and and she was um on the anti-aircraft sites too one piece that came out in the book, the the image in, in the inlay is the uh, is the recruitment poster, uh, yes. which I thought was fantastic of this very glamorous ATS lady, which got withdrawn because uh, for obvious yes. reasons, it, it does present a, a, a probably not what they were trying to go for. So you can see why it was withdrawn. Uh, a, a, this is Abram Games, isn't it? His wonderful yes. artwork. Yeah. Yes. In fact, you know, bizarrely, he's very cool. And I only discovered that he's my local Stockwell tube. He's done a mosaic, the Swan, um, inspired by the local pub, the Swan. So he carried on after the war. He was quite a guy. And he also did uh, later ATS recruitment posters that were somewhat toned down. But yeah, there was this balance between there was a very big kind of concern that women needed to re retain their femininity, even though they're serving, but they couldn't be too sexy. And it was seen to be the balance of his sort of blonde bombshell was uh, a step too far. You know, it was too comely and not sort of sufficiently military. And now, one thing I'm, I'm going to interrupt you because um, yeah. One thing I, I, my mother was showing me pictures of the ATS uh, at the weekend, which was um, my grandmother was in, in the ATS. And those, those uniforms cannot be described as in any way glamorous. No, they do. So when was, when did your grandmother serve? Do you know the dates of her service? I, round about, ooh, I, I, I'd only be able to give you vague. Um, hopeless, what a hopeless 40, oral 40, story. 40, 41, 40, 41. <laughs> Ah, well, that was, did volunteer. Before, that was before the new look uniform. So what you have is in 1941, we realise we've got a 
scale up female military recruitment, particularly into this ATS, which is going to provide the manpower for the gun sites. We've got to make it a more attractive prospect. So Dame Helen Gwynne Bourne, you know, long in the tooth, termagant or whatever she's called, she has a big fight with the fannies. Um, she's, she's elbowed out. Um, she's very glad. Finally, they've got, you know, military status, um, legal military status, and, you know, they're given extra trades, but her time's up. And you get a much more attractive, glamorous Jean Knox, she's called. And she goes on, actually, to be, I think, the creative director of um, Peter Jones, the department store. So she knows about um, the importance of image and look. And it is very important. All the girls remember the uniform. You know, this was something that they needed to be able to take pride in. So it is reformed and you get rid of that horrible sort of pancake hat. You get the, the chica cap. It's more tucked in at the waist. It's not just sort of like a sack of potatoes. Um, so things do improve from 1941. So maybe your grandmother came in too early and therefore it didn't flatter her. What I'm sure was a very good figure, Ollie, if she was, uh, you know, part of your family tree. But it ought to be said um, that the Fanny, who were the exception, and ma managed to sort of retain autonomous status despite being hood hoodwinked into the ATS um, for sort of practical reasons as much as anything. Because you, if girls are fighting in the war, they need to be paid and, and you know, have a pension, all that kind of stuff. And the Fanny was a voluntary organisation pre-war. They have a lovely uniform. Oh, yeah. Their Savile Row, their uniforms. And Joyce and Jean very, very much show off about that. They talk about the sort of, you know, the saddler made belts and so forth. And they do look pretty good. These are sort of posh girls cut a dash. I mean, no wonder the men were having a feel. God almighty, can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> Heaven help us. Also, the ATS is a very interesting role, by the way. Not the ATS, I've got the, the fanny. Um, where they are this elite anomalous force, they're quite difficult to write about because in a narrative, you need to hold your reader. I've already got a lot of women. I'm demanding a lot of my reader. You need to know who these women are. You've got pictures now on the back of the book to help guide you um, who the women are and, and an inset. But I was very keen that um, we also incorporated the Spanny narrative. But how do you do that and how do you make it sit within a broader ATS military, ATS army narrative? And that then um, demanded I introduce the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, which was sort of ungentlemanly warfare. It's quite often romanticised agents being dropped behind enemy lines, often dying, you know, a real case, both men and women, mainly men, but, but certainly a significant number of women, over 30 of whom were uh, at least nominally part of the fanny but actually much the biggest role the fanny played in relation to soe was sort of being backup um, for these agents who were sent often to their death and back up either back in england or indeed overseas um, in places like egypt and italy intercepting the code and ciphers you know uh, the in transmitter huts picking up the signals from these agents and what's interesting is the sort of and Anne says this really honestly you know the posh vicar's daughter at the beginning of the book you know well a recruiting tool was the class system so let's not pretend about that that's what i mean about this book being challenging gender sexism racism or the whole gamut you're running into all the time you know yes Fannies came from private schools. They needed two references from their doctor and some other posh bloke in the village. And it was presumed by virtue of their good family name that they would be good, kosher, trustworthy. You know, and, and it wasn't always the case, but it, it was a shorthand for finding appropriate girls who could keep secrets because this was, and it was similar, of course, to Bletchley Park, which I was a favour with from a previous project. Well, Tessa, this has been fantastic. We, we, we're coming to the Have end. Have I talked too much? Have no. 
Not at all. This could go on for hours. I mean, I, we know. could carry on, but I, uh, I, I think you probably want people to read the book rather than listen. Yeah, read the damn book. Yeah, they need to buy the book. book. Now it's out on the fourth of November, I think. Yeah. Can we talk about the title, girls? People said, "Oh, we call." Yes, girls. let's talk about that because I've been making a mistake and calling them ladies, and you've. Yeah, but me. but a lot of feminists don't retweet me. The the new generation. I'm the second generation. I wasn't like, oh, I'm the second generation feminist. It's a whole new world out there now. Brave new world. Scary new world. But I feel very strongly that the army at that time, the war office, didn't want long in the tooth challenging women who wanted to go back to their husband at the weekend and look after their children and who weren't mobile and were a bit more bullshit. They wanted girls who were biddable and mobile and more or less always did what they were told. They were very proud to be serving most of these girls and still are. There's a great sort of sense of belonging. They hold on to that. And they were girls, they were referred to as girls and they referred to themselves as girls. And it was girls that they wanted. And the um, conscription when it's introduced is for 20 year old girls, 20 upwards, and then it's lowered to 19. And you can serve from the age of 17 and a half with appropriate permissions. Some lied about their age, including Grace. I haven't even started my period. That's another story, by the way, periods in the army. Terrible fanny pads, they chafed, no pain relief. And you got put on a charge if you had period pain and didn't turn up to breakfast. God, bloody army. Anyway, so, yeah, there was a lot to get used to. In fact, Betty said to me, love Betty. She, wanted, she um, I just don't know, because she's good friends with some of the military community who've served more recently. I don't know how Ali did it now out there on the front line, because obviously the, the barriers have all been finely removed for women in the army. If you get a terrible period, how can you operate on the front line? And I said, oh, well, it's called the contraceptive pill. Betty, it does wonders for oh I hadn't thought of that it wasn't available in our day you know I know it sounds really boring so much has changed I'm sounding like my grandmother but it's just uh, I always find it kind of extraordinary how these women who are still alive many of them have remained so contemporary because it's just a totally unrecognizable world a world where women couldn't fire guns not because it was more dangerous but, but because it was a manly thing to do it was manly and it was very important that manly was different from feminine not necessarily better, but different. And that was, those were sort of the parameters of living, of, of social of society, the differences between the genders, not what united them, but what separated them. And I think getting used to that when writing the book was sometimes challenging. And I had some interesting conversations with the women on that front. I said to Martha, let's just let it end on Martha, why can't we? She's, I said to Martha, so at the end of this all, because she goes on, first of all, she is in the army, the, you know, proposed, she's a, doing radar she's a subaltern she goes overseas to Italy and Austria in 46 comes back then joins the TA the territorial army um, makes her name this is a significant player in the formation in Scotland of the females in the territorial army lieutenant colonel then she governs not one but two prisons for women in Scotland she's proper <laughs> proper I would say brava and a proper femo so I say to super posh lady Martha Bruce are you a feminist? And she goes, you've asked me that before. And I says, yeah, Martha, but you didn't answer it. Answer it. Are you a feminist? Well, I'm not a bra burning, chain them to the railing sort of feminist. She doesn't speak, she speaks like this, actually, sort of posh Scotch, she speaks like this. Not a chain them to railing sort of feminist. But do I think girls should be given an equal shot at things? Yes, I do. Like this. I thought it was quite something to get to prize that out of Martha, age 99. Absolutely. That's a great way to end it. Now, you've got Army Girls. It's, it's out the 4th of November. Yes. So our listeners need to buy it. 
It's yeah. that's that's Thursday. The Have you bought? Wednesday, are you going to buy a copy? Ollie, I, well, I'm also well. I am going to buy a copy, but I haven't bought it yet um, because myself, my mother, because she's obviously interested in this. Uh, we will be going to the National Army Museum on the 10th of November. So again, uh, Daphne, Daphne will be there. Betty great. will be there. Great. Um, a, a cook. You know, I talked about the importance of cooks. Diana will be there, and my fannies, Jean and Joyce, will be there. Well, that's fantastic. Well, we are very excited about that. And and there yes. we shall purchase lots of, of these copies. Good. And then and then on the 14th, you're in pool. You're yeah. with Grace at the Lighthouse. She's a gunner girl. She was on the Height Finder and she was in domestic service and found uh, the army changed her life. It was a great boon joining the ATS. And she's absolutely wonderful, Grace. I've got a deep soft spot for her, not just because she's on Zoom, but it does help things. Um, I loved Grace, so please do join us 3pm in Poole at the Lighthouse Theatre or indeed, yes, at NAM, the National Army Museum on the 10th. Three line wit for you, Ollie, um, for both those and books. And thank you very much for talking to me on Aspects of History podcast. What an exciting privilege. I think you outplanted me. You've got some rather decorous and phallic plants in the background and some fairy lights, just so that listeners know I can set the scene for them. <laughs> well, that's very good of you. Well, thank you, Tessa. Um, you also got a piece in Aspects of History and December, which is very exciting. I'm currently and, writing it. I'm currently writing it, Ollie. Well, I thought I'd get in the reminder live on a podcast. Yes, thank you. No, don't thank worry. You. Thank you list. very much. Um, <laughs> and best of luck with Army Girls. Lots of love. Bye. <laughs>